Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be covering a story called My Pathology by Lisa Tuttle. This story was uh, originally written or published, I should say, in 1998. It's a long story. So we're going to do two episodes on it. And this is the first, which is our recap of the story. And these are bonus episodes. We're we're doing them because one of our really awesome Patreon supporters commissioned them. This is something, of course, that we are really grateful for. So we just want to say thank you so much for the support. Yeah, thank you. It really does mean a lot to us. And we are immensely grateful for it. Well, this is uh, this is ultimately a kind of weird tale. I mean, there's lots of weird elements brought in here, mostly through imagery, but also through the the kind of central context of the text itself. We're going to be dealing with alchemy and philosopher's stones and also uh, women's bodies. So there's a lot going on in this story. I don't want to spoil too much before we get going, because uh, this is a story I think that's best encountered as it unravels. Yeah, we don't want to spoil anything, but I actually do think that we should issue a bit of a content advisory before we get into it, which is not something that we usually do because, hey, uh, we're reading horror stories here, right? And I think just <laughs> that by definition, right, that means that what we do here is talk about horrific, awful things. But this story has a number of things going on that people just may not want to hear about. So we do want to let you know about that before we get into it so you can decide that for yourself. We're going to be talking about cancer. Uh, We're going to be talking about lost pregnancies. We are also going to have to be fairly explicit about some sexual activities. And this this last item here, this is something we normally just dance around when it shows up, and it does show up from time to time. But here, it's it's important to the plot, and so there's there's no avoiding it in this case. So wanted to let you know about those things. And so with that uh, advisory advised, I think now we're equipped to to get into it. Yeah, we'll still do a fill. We'll still do a fair bit of dancing, I think, uh, but uh, let's, <laughs> let's get into the story, Glenn. <laughs> it may not be a truth universally acknowledged, but people value more that which is not easily won. Challenge and difficulty add to the appeal. Now, these are the opening lines of My Pathology, a very nice Jane Austen reference here. And to illustrate this point, the, the narrator, uh, this is going to be a first-person story, by the way. So the narrator invokes her friend Saskia, who only falls for men who are already committed elsewhere. But when the narrator mentioned this to Saskia once, she just said, if that's your pathology. But, uh, and in here I'm quoting again, but love is a basic human need. Does it make sense to call it a disease? And we have not gotten very far into the story, but I think we need to pause here and I think slow clap actually about this opening section, because what a great way to start a story. It is. I mean, as you pointed out, Glenn, the opening paragraph of this story is a bit of a riff on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which starts with this line. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. and. That's not a bad place to start if you're inviting your audience as a writer to think about the need for love uh, as a driving and and motivating factor, which I think it is as an experience for the majority of us, for the majority of us. And indeed, that's just what Lisa Tuttle's narrator is saying here, I think, that love, the need for love is a motivating experience in our lives. It's a driving force in our uh, motivation. But she sort of reverses a big part of what makes up in Jane Austen's novel, uh, a marriage plot, which is looking at the communal participation and interests in the romantic relationship and how that relationship is going to form new bonds and dynamics within the local community of those impacted by the marriage. And instead, really points to the need to be loved as a working out of one's own pathology. In this case, it's instead about one's relationship to oneself, really. Like, my relationship is with my pathology that I need to work out. Rather than about our relationship with someone else and how that relationship is part of a larger series of social relations and and bonds. And I also want to point out here that uh, 
as Lisa Tuttle continues her remarks about, you know, the truth not universally acknowledged, <laughs> that uh, the idea of the obtaining something that is unavailable requires that that thing be seen more as some sort of object to be won, but also that obtaining that thing is more about your sense of self and status or, you know, like whatever else. And it's less about the object itself. And hey, people aren't objects, they're subjects like we are, they have their own experiences. So we're introduced right away to a character who, in my opinion, has just thrown like a major red flag in terms of uh, the question of whether or not this relationship will be healthy or any relationship that this character has uh, will be healthy. And as we're going to see, I mean, the, the pathology here in the title, pathology that's being invoked or evoked here, is is going to be a double on tantra. Like we're we, you know we're going to talk about the different meanings of this word or or the different instances of pathologies, I guess that we see in this story. But yeah, this this opening here just asks us, you know, this question, right? Like. Are our romantic behaviors, our our desire for love or some kind of companionship, is that a, a pathology? Is that a type of of disease? Though interestingly, right, the story is not ever going to take us in a place where we examine the causes of this particular pathology, either in the narrator or in her best friend here. But one of the reasons, also, I think that I really love this this opening line is just thinking about this story in its original context. If you were reading this story in 1998, then you were reading it in an anthology uh, published by Gollins uh, in the UK called Dark Terrors 4. So, right, that automatically you know inherently, right, this is a, an anthology of horror stories. And this line here, you know, twisting and playing with the, you know, opening to Pride and Prejudice lets us know, right, that this is going to be a relationship drama in this horror anthology. And uh, I think that's a really great way to sort of signal what the, the genre of this story is going to be and signal to us, of course, as well, right, that Tuttle is going to be playing with the conventions of the relationship drama and also horror. And I think that's really one of the strengths of this story is the way that it plays with genre conventions. It absolutely is. And, and we're cer certainly going to take some of that up in, in our discussion. I, I want to just point out and make it as explicit as possible that this uh, concept of love here, yes, it's a, it's a horror story. It finds itself in a horror story. The, the concept that love is like the working out of a pathology or the need for love is, is something that's caused by like trauma in our past. And then it works itself out in these weird ways. Uh, that is a very, very cynical idea of love that's rooted in what you as an individual are receiving rather than what it means to form bonds with other people. And uh, that cynicism, I think, is really deeply explored in this story and purposefully explored in this story by Lisa Tuttle, who's maybe also taking up some broader cultural attitudes about uh, casual sex and dating and flings and relationships and, and things along those lines. Right, because this is going to be the story about the the narrator's relationship, or uh, you know, a relationship that she's going to have. Though in this specific case, it's about the relationship that she's going to have with Daniel. And when she met Daniel, he was actually still getting out of his previous relationship with uh, another woman, a woman named Michelle. Daniel and Michelle had been together for three years, and then they had a disagreement about something serious, something about which there can be no compromise. Uh, that's what Daniel says. So he also does not give any details. And, you know, that's awesome for us. That's a nice storytelling hook. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, Daniel and Michelle, they're no longer romantically or sexually involved. But, you know, Michelle's having a hard time with the end of the relationship. And so... Daniel's trying to help her, but he's already told her about the narrator. And so he must, you know, really mean it. It must really be over. This is a strong indicator here for the narrator that uh, it is time to take her friendship with Daniel to uh, another place, another level, we might say. Now, of course, right. We, the readers, observe immediately that this is a huge problem. If the narrator were our friend and she told us about this situation that she's gotten herself in, uh, we would tell her to get out immediately. But of course, we aren't her friend. We're just passive, you know, watchers of this story, readers <laughs> of this story. So we don't get that chance, no matter how much we shout at the, the pages of this book. And the thing to know about Daniel and the narrator is that they both work in central London. They're doing office jobs of some sort, but Daniel lives farther out. He lives out past the point where the underground is actually 
underground. It's uh, above ground at this point in London. And Daniel owns a, a small two-bedroom house out here. Uh, this is Harrow. That's the, the neighborhood that he's in. It's, you know, Harrow for anyone who cares about London geography. I care. So I don't know. It's maybe just a <laughs> no for me. But he's got a, a small house. And what is going to matter for the plot is that the rail line runs behind it. And if you're on the train pulling into Rainer's Lane from central London, you see the back of his house before you get there. And then you have to walk about 15 minutes back to the house. And, you know, this actually is going to going to matter. But what matters right now is that a major feature of the house is that the second bedroom is Daniel's workroom. And the workroom is always locked because he's an alchemist. And uh, again, I say, get out, get out now. Yeah, I mean, this this narrator whose name we'll find out eventually is Bess. Uh, <laughs> absolutely needs to be out of this relationship. Yet she is drawn into it in, in part because of Daniel, of her needing to obtain Daniel in in some sense. And early on in this section, Bess feels like she has won. Daniel from this unknown woman named Michelle. And so what she's really in competition with is Michelle trying to take Daniel away fully and and excise Daniel from this relationship with Michelle. And she's not as much focused on her relationship with Daniel. Bess has a kind of soft attitude towards Daniel because he's caring and his caring is expressed through the way he's still taking care of Michelle after the breakup. Like he's let best know there are nights he needs to go spend with Michelle. So Daniel Hill here also strikes me as a person who really carries around red flags in his back pocket, just like <laughs> casually tosses them out. You know, whether or not he's actually still sleeping with Michelle, it feels to me like Daniel is using this idea of Michelle to really lean into a wounded bird persona for the sake of Bess. It feels performative and it draws Bess in. He's like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good guy and I've been wounded in the past. And, I, you know, I don't have bad relationships. I'm still friends with all my exes and I really care for them. And that really takes a toll. I just need someone to care for me for once. And hey, that that's just not a great look. If you're in that position, uh, take a deep breath, examine your life a little bit and, and try to walk it back a little bit. Yeah, it just seems so manipulative, right? Like immediately just, yeah, Daniel is not someone, even just subjectively, right? We've, we've not met him outside of the narrator's perspective, outside of Bess's perspective yet. And I, I guess, you know, technically we never will, right? Of course, because it's Bess's story to be told here. Uh, but yeah, he immediately just strikes me as someone who is manipulating Bess and she just doesn't realize it. We'll talk about why she doesn't realize it or what she's getting out of the relationship when we reach the end of this section. Right, because right now, what we need to talk about is uh, the fact that Daniel's an alchemist and also that he's serious <laughs> about this. So in the workroom, he's got shelves filled with old books. He's got sealed jars with Latin labels. There's beakers and vessels. There's a, you know, a Bunsen burner. It all smells a bit funny, as it should. And Daniel tells the narrator about this hobby, a passion, really. And he t tells her about this pretty early in their relationship. He shows her the room. He is super into all of this. In fact, it's the focus of his life. He's looking for the Philosopher's Stone, but he doesn't need her to be into it or even to care about it at all, right? He's just trying to be open with her, right? Show her who he is. And a few months later, she gets Daniel to explain that uh, Michelle had actually tried to share this hobby with him, right? Tried to share his interest in alchemy. It hadn't worked out. Uh, she lied to him by pretending to be interested in it when really she was not. But now Bess actually wants to learn more about alchemy. She says that she could get into it. But Daniel refuses, right? Because he's made this mistake before. He's not going to make it again. And that is that. But... It's not, right? The narrator gets some books. She begins to study on her own, uh, does this on the nights that she spends by herself in her own apartment, which, by the way, are only the nights when Daniel goes to spend time with Michelle, right? His ex-girlfriend, he very definitely isn't still romantically involved with, despite the fact that several nights a week he <laughs> spends time with her. But, uh, but, but Bess is getting more and more attached to Daniel, and not even a year into their relationship, it's uh, becoming a sore point with her, actually, that he 
won't ask her to move in with him or just, you know, go buy a new place together. But this all comes to a head when Bess discovers that she's pregnant. They had not been being careful, and in particular, Bess had actually been thinking that getting pregnant would force the issue of them living together or not, but she doesn't tell Daniel right away. And then one night, a few weeks into this new sort of secretive phase of their relationship here, Bess is taking the train out to his place, and she sees something really strange on the back of his house. It's a, a kind of blister or, or bubble or cocoon, maybe. It's white. It's the size of a small room. She tries to think of a rational explanation for it, but it, it doesn't matter because when she gets to Daniel's house, uh, there isn't anything there. there. There's not actually anything on the back of the house. And Bess explains to him what she saw. And Daniel says that, you know, maybe it was excitement and then heavy pause. And then he says, or hormones. And she realizes that he knows that she's pregnant. And so now he asks her to move in. And he even says that, you know, they'll they'll convert the alchemy workroom into a nursery because his priorities are going to have to change now. Yeah. What he says is my workroom can be the nursery and I can't be (laughs) sure, but I am not sure there is a more sinister sentence in any story that I've ever read, given how the rest of this story plays out. You know, what's important about this last line? of this section, at least on the surface, is that it does resolve a fair bit of the soreness, quote unquote, that our narrator has experienced in her relationship with Daniel. She's upset that Daniel is still withholding things from her, keeping himself ultimately unobtainable. Uh, the first of those two things is the hobby of alchemy, the you know discovery of the philosopher's stone, though. I really think that Bess is right in thinking of this more of a religion than anything else. And, you know, it's an old adage that people with really wholly different belief systems are not going to have a successful relationship. <laughs> Apparently, Bess has not been taught this. Um, and and the other thing that Daniel is keeping or withholding from the narrator, in a sense, it, though he's, you know, super understanding about Bess's feelings because he's such a sensitive guy, uh, is that Daniel, as we pointed out now multiple times, still like spends nights with Michelle. And I mean, Bess and Daniel have been together for quite some time now, and he's still really tending to his ex while Bess is trying to move forward with the relationship and start a family. So like this whole situation is just super bad for both of them. Like neither of them are actually ready to have a a relationship with another person. Uh, Daniel, because he's super still hung up on Michelle and her feelings about their relationship and Bess, because she is attracted to what Daniel's withholding, not Daniel himself. And, Also, I I really agree with Bess here, like carpentry or writing or doing paint by numbers or tinkering with cars. Like these things are hobbies, uh, not secret alchemical experiments behind closed doors. And then also, you know, Bess starts hallucinating as a result of this pregnancy. It's just everything is really uh, it's really not going great. Yeah, alchemy is definitely on the list of things that you should not be looking for as a hobby in your in your partner. Also on that list, though, by the way, are uh, uh, podcasts about you know hundred year old horror stories. <laughs> well, no one's going to leave us now, Glenn. So, <laughs> right. So now is when things really start to get weird because Bess does not like hospitals, and therefore she doesn't go see a doctor about her pregnancy, even as she is actually starting to have some pretty intense uh, reactions, some pretty intense uh, symptoms. And Daniel's totally supportive of this, totally supportive of her refusal to go see a doctor. And even when she finally decides that she'd really probably better because she's not feeling very well, he suggests that his mother could check her out because, hey, turns out she's a doctor. Uh, She's in private practice. She does not work for the NHS, the National Health Service. So, you know, you can't look her up in the directory, but don't worry about that. She's very definitely a doctor and she's going to come around to the house. And she does. But yeah, something is off with her from the start. For one, although she does look a little bit like Daniel, she seems too young, even, even though she's got gray streaks in her hair. She's also 
very attractive, even though she seems to be trying to hide that with you know, glasses and, and frumpy clothes, you know, standard kind of costume here. We've all seen a 1990s rom-com, right? So <laughs> that's what's happening here, I guess. And also, of course, right, the examination that she gives to Bess is pretty cursory. It seems to mostly amount to checking her blood pressure and weighing her, which, you know, are things that really anyone could do, right? And when she is leaving, when Daniel's mother, the doctor, is leaving, she says that it is so great that Bess is giving Daniel a child, which is certainly not, you know, what Bess thinks she's doing. Daniel smooths this out, and his mother offers a, a kind of explanation. But but still, it seems like a revelation, at least to us, the, the reader. It seems kind of mind-boggling that you know, Bess herself hasn't figured out what is going on, uh, what is so obvious to us, that we will <laughs> save the revelation until it actually comes. But the other thing that's going on is that Bess has not stopped seeing this weird bubble on the back of the house, at least not when she uh, goes by the back of the house on the train. But she knows that no one else can see it because she's actually brought her friend Saskia, who we, we opened the story with. Uh, she brought Saskia out here and Saskia has not seen it. Also, this thing, whatever it is, is getting bigger as her pregnancy develops. And at this point, she knows that it isn't really there, right? She knows that whatever she's seeing is coming from within her somehow. What she's doing is projecting this pregnancy as something ultimately monstrous, like an, literally thinking of it as an outgrowth of Daniel's of Daniel's home in some sense. Like literally this looks like an extension of Daniel's property and especially symbolically an outgrowth of his very private hobby. Uh, this idea of projection also shows up in that first paragraph that we talked about where Bess says something about Saskia, like only wanting men who don't want her or are withholding something from her. And Saskia is like, well, if that's your pathology, it gives us a sense that that is a, a projection. And we'll dig into that a little more in our discussion episode. The sense that Bess is being manipulated by Daniel, though, at this point is somehow made worse by Bess's constant self-justifications and rationalizations for making it seem like everything that Daniel really wants is her idea. But it's not. Uh, Daniel doesn't really want to do anything for Bess, uh, like what Bess wants in the relationship, until he finds out that she's pregnant. He doesn't move an inch before that moment. Bess is also really so focused on what she wants. She's so focused on that that she avoids her own serious misgivings about her circumstances. So like Bess wants a baby. She doesn't necessarily want a baby with Daniel. She wants the baby because it'll cause Daniel to do things that she wants in the relationship. So she makes excuses for Daniel, not really talking much about his parents or his childhood or, or anything like that. And I guess that's like what makes her desire her own, her focus on her own wants a pathology because she's, almost under the control of her own emotions, like her emotions and desires are controlling her rather than her being able to like address them and move through them and process them. The, th the thing about pathological behavior in psychology, as far as I know, which is very little and, and I ought to be corrected if I'm wrong here uh, publicly, like on the forum, is, is that it's not the degree to which a want or a belief or a desire is true or normal or normalized in culture. It's the degree to which that emotional state is maladaptive to your health and situation. Like if you're stuck in the belief or emotional state, uh, being right or wanting the right things or having the right beliefs doesn't mean that what those things are are not a pathology if they're causing you to not be able to adapt or see clearly through uh, your situation or if, if it causes you to be unable to function in the uh, circumstance that you're in. And that's very definitely happening here with Bess, right? The She's not making good choices you know, for herself, not making good choices for this relationship. I mean, you know, I don't think that anyone really needs me to say that uh, becoming pregnant without having a conversation about this with your partner, without deciding <laughs> that this is something you want to do together is not good for 
anyone. It's not good for either of the people in the relationship and is not good for the relationship at, at all. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, at this point, 16 months into having a child. And I will say that one of the defining experiences of bringing a new person into the world is that you yourself stop getting sleep and stop getting any time <laughs> for like your life. So it's got to be something that you want to do, you know, for the sake of doing it and not because it's a fix for, for something else. Again, you know, I know nobody needs to hear me say that, but uh, that's sort of really the, you know, what I'm approaching this story with. And it actually made it kind of difficult for me to get through this story because I really just wanted to sit best down and give her a talking to. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, her pregnancy unlocks the door to the workshop. You know, it, it, it's the key to getting Daniel to like stop withholding in some ways. And yet we'll see that as the story continues, what she's really attracted to is Daniel withholding things from her. And we might be able to track that through some childhood trauma that she experienced and, and what that implies in the text. Um, but when Daniel's completely open with her, as we'll see in a little bit, uh, as the story continues, it, it, that's not what she wants out of this relationship. Right. Let, let's get to the the point where uh, Daniel is going to have to open up about what is actually going on here. So Bess begins to also have some really horrifying dreams about the baby. There are dreams where she has a baby and accidentally harms it in some way. Like, uh, you know, some of this is pretty gruesome, like uh, accidentally putting the baby in the garbage or... Uh, putting the baby in the oven to to keep it warm and, and and that sort of thing. This is you know not actually unusual to have this type of anxiety. I'm still having this type of anxiety about <laughs> being responsible for you know a new person here. But then there are the dreams about giving birth to something monstrous, something not human. And and this also is not actually all that unusual. There is also a dream that she has about giving birth from inside some sort of cocoon and asphyxiating while doing it. And she wakes up from this dream. She looks out the, the window and now she actually sees the bubble on the house from the inside of the, the house it, it itself, which has never happened before. And she screams and, and this alerts Daniel, who is outside with someone, someone else, uh, someone who is uh, the doctor, it turns out, Daniel's mother. Except her hair and her clothes are different. And now finally, right, Bess understands that she has never met Daniel's mother, that this is Michelle, and that she was in disguise as a doctor before. But Bess passes out or, you know, something, she loses consciousness, and then she, she comes to on the couch and she wants to know where the woman she saw is. But Daniel doesn't know what she's talking about. He says that he was in bed with her when she woke up screaming and she stumbled downstairs and he only got to her just in time to catch her as she passed out. And that's how she wound up on the couch. And Bess tells us that she believed him, though I wonder how true that actually is. I mean, I, I guess I you know, believe Bess here in this moment. We'll get more on that later. But at this point, Bess decides that she really ought to see like an actual doctor who's not Michelle, though, she's not giving up to Daniel that she has sussed that out, whether or not she really saw anything or it was just a dream, because the pain now is is getting worse. And in, in fact, she's bleeding a bit. And also, she has not felt the baby move at all. But this time, she she doesn't tell Daniel. She goes to see a doctor on her own in secret. And here's the thing. She isn't pregnant at all. What's growing in her womb is actually a tumor. She rushes home to tell Daniel this, and he's furious. He's not supportive or sympathetic at all or worried or anything that he ought to be. He's angry. He's very angry. He cannot believe that she went to the hospital. He cannot believe that she didn't trust him. And obviously, this is not the reaction that Bess was expecting, not the reaction she was hoping for. Right? He has no regard for the fact that she's just been diagnosed with a, a cancerous growth that's going to require some serious surgery. But Daniel says that the doctors don't know what they're talking about. He says it's not a tumor, that what's growing inside of her is the Philosopher's Stone. So there's a lot going on in this section. And, and we should be clear, right, that Daniel really believes this. He's got a whole explanation about super DNA and alchemical marriage. But Bess talks with Saskia, and it turns out that Saskia had something similar happen to her. She had a, an ovarian cancer, and she had to be operated on. And her own chances of becoming pregnant are, are now quite small. And this decides best here, but there's an important detail to Saskia's story that we, we should not overlook. The cyst that was removed from her contained 
baby teeth, bits of bone and tissue, and, and also a, a huge hairball. And her doctor said that this is not that unusual because the cyst is actually the result of something going wrong with ovarian cells. But Bess imagines that this is what will be in her tumor, and she wonders if the doctors will let her keep it, which is kind of a strange response to to learning about this. So, so yeah, there, there's been a lot going on in this section. This is a you know, big pivotal moment of the story here. Yeah, it really is. What, one thing I want to point out here is that Bess's fear of hospitals is really kind of explored and explained a lot in this section. Um, one thing we didn't mention is that Bess has appendicitis or had it, and her appendix burst when she was a kid. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But I, I want to start kind of by thinking about this uh, philosopher's stone. We'll kind of go back and move our way through this section because there is a lot going on here. And at this point, I just really can't help but to think that the, the whole Harry Potter series would have really turned out seriously <laughs> differently if J.K. Rowling had decided to go this route with the idea of the Philosopher's <laughs> Stone, like it's something inside the woman's body, you know, and just all these other ideas caught up in it. But, you know, the idea of the Philosopher's Stone is really as old as alchemy itself. And it's sometimes thought that the Philosopher's Stone will be red or white, and the red stone is something that's more powerful because it's more mature. The Philosopher's Stone is primarily thought of as either something that transmutes base metals into gold, though it's often also associated with the elixir of life, like eternal life a la Nicholas Flamel in the first Harry Potter book. Um, you know, And in the sense that the Philosopher's Stone is thought of to be a metaphor within the quote-unquote great work of alchemy, it's thought that the work of alchemy will lead to true enlightenment, to total knowledge and that sort of thing. So you know, there's also this element of sacred geometry associated with this practice. And and that idea of sacred geometry is also associated, and these are like 16th century texts here. Uh, it's also associated with the joining of the masculine and feminine and some sort of geometric configuration that will lead, you know, the seeker to the stone of the wise. And so maybe it's this idea that Tuttle is playing with here. Like she's really bucking against the idea of the sacred feminine as a secret to the truth of life. And I think she would have had like a really hard time with the Da Vinci Code when it came out, which was like five years <laughs> after this story. I think she would have been like, I already wrote a story critiquing Dan Brown's ideas about the sacred feminine here. What's going on? Didn't he read it? Um, yeah. So I, I and the sacred feminine is kind of this idea that the the the, the w women are naturally closer to the divine because they create life and they hold the power of life within them and all, and all that sort of stuff. And it's a, uh, that kind of fetishization, maybe uh, femininity uh, that can be as unhealthy as any type of um, fetishization. I want to return now to the appendix bursting stuff and how that relates to Bess's dreams. Like Bess knows that Michelle was the doctor because she can trust in the prophetic nature of her dreams. But what these revelations reveal to us as the reader is like really just how deeply flawed or unwell Bess is. And so let's look at this appendix bursting dream. Uh, when she's eight years old, Bess has a dream where she goes downstairs and she sees her mother and father sitting at the table. And then her parents' shadows become insects. And while Bess's mother is holding Bess down. The insect shadow of the mother stabs Bess in the stomach, like literally penetrates Bess's stomach and causes the appendix to burst. So on some level here in the dream, Bess is holding her mother really responsible for the appendix burst bursting. And there's like a perfectly maybe natural explanation for this, which is like, if you're a kid and something really goes this horribly wrong, medically speaking, what authority do you really have to put that on besides your parents? But this dream to me really indicates that Bess thinks her mother had a really much more active role in her appendix bursting. And I don't see how this could be true unless perhaps there was some child abuse taking place. You know, there's the imagery of the insects, the piercing of the abdomen while the mother holds her down, and also the 
really the disappearance of the father in this moment. He's like not really a part of this part of the dream. And so maybe there's a dark implication there of the father maybe abusing her while the mother allows this to happen in an active way. But I don't really think that's the implication of the text. The real implication to me of this dream, especially if we think about Bess's total aversion to doctors and hospitals, um, and the kind of the ramping up to this moment of her appendix bursting, is that Bess's mother may have induced an issue with Bess, uh, perhaps because Bess's mother uh, suffered from Munchausen by proxy, which is where typically mothers will make their children ill in order to receive attention and affirmation from essentially medical professionals. And so in that case, Bess would not see doctors as authoritative or helpful because they, they couldn't see through her mother's behavior with them as a, as well, as a pathology. And so I wonder if there's something like that going on in this story, this real fear of hospitals and of doctors and of this mother's active role in the appendix bursting. Um, it's just a weird conclusion I drew. I could spend more time trying to prove it textually, uh, but it really came to me more as an intuition. Yeah, I I hate dreams. Uh, I mean, not like in reality, though. Actually, that is also true, which I think we've talked about before on the, the podcast. <laughs> that uh, uh, I suffer from the same affliction of dreams that that Lovecraft did, where they they feel like uh, just like a terrible uh, like invasion <laughs> rather than something fun that's going on. But uh, no, I, I mean, I hate them in stories. Uh, I'm I'm never really all that interested in dream sequences, and I don't really like them as a, a narrative technique for for telling us something about a character or showing us something about the plot. It's just not something that I care for. It doesn't really appeal to or interest me all that much as either a reader or a writer. And so I didn't put nearly as much thought into this dream sequence as you did. In fact, right, I totally skipped it in the recap because I just went, that's ah, a dream. Doesn't matter. Dreams don't matter. It's just kind of my uh, my want. And I will say it's definitely a flaw, right, for me as a, as a reader to just skip them like that because I think you make some good points here and, and show certainly that the dream does matter. It's important. But I'm, I'm not sure I agree with either of those readings. I don't necessarily disagree. I just want to add one, which is simply that being sick, having to have a major surgery, you know, getting appendicitis uh, sucks. And it sucks worse when you're a kid. And it's harder to understand what's actually happening, you know, why this is going on, why you have to go see a doctor, uh, even when you don't want to, right? Your parents make you go get these procedures done that uh, you're, you're you know, under anesthesia when they're they're done, but still, like when you get done, uh, there's there's pain, there's recovery, there are things you can't do. There may even be other you know consequences to having had a surgery, depending on what it is, and so on. And this all can be really traumatic for kids. Uh, this is something I have some personal experience with in my own uh, family. Kids, uh, you know, five and you know, six, seven, eight, requiring pretty serious medical procedures. Uh, now that I've got a kid of my own and have you know had to hold him down while he's getting you know his immunizations, just regular shots. Uh, man, all of that is real tough uh, as a parent. It's real tough as as a kid, though, too, right? It can be real traumatic. And one of the things that's going on is that, you know, your parents are supposed to protect you from bad things happening, not take you to the place where people are going to do bad things to you. Uh, even if, you know, ultimately as an adult, you can come to understand that those bad things like, you know, getting shots, uh, being put under anesthesia so that uh, uh, something could be taken from your body, something harmful could be taken out of your body. Uh, you recognize that those are good things that helped you out in the moment. It's it's not always clear. And so uh, this can feel like a betrayal, can feel very much right, like your your parents are betraying you, like they're actually monsters who are either harming you or allowing other people to harm you, right? So I, I don't know that this has to be a, 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 you know, the, a dream manifestation of some kind of child abuse. This could actually just be the dream manifestation of having to go to the hospital as a kid. That is a, a, also a totally fair reading. My last piece of uh, <laughs> intuition uh, or uh, evidence that led to this intuition is, is that as we continue on with this story, it feels more and more to me that best confuses illness with being loved. And that to me feels like it could be something that leads back to this moment, especially if her mother, the time and attention that Beth got from her mother was about illness 
rather than about, you know, encouragement for being a good flute player or something like that, you know. <laughs> so that, that that's just another kind of intuition I had uh, with regards to this text. But I think your reading is ultimately very fair and well-founded textually as well. There are a few more things in the in the section that we, I want to take a look at briefly before we move on. The other is this increasing sense in the text uh, of Bess's need for Daniel to like take care of her through this pregnancy, but also her continual need to believe and trust him, even as that in- instinct that she has or that need that she has is not being reciprocated by Daniel at all. And as Daniel's instructions for Bess and his need of Bess, need for Bess in this way are not really healthy for Bess either. And, you know, indeed, Bess does break at this point. And she discovers that her health, really her whole reproductive system is on the line. And when she finds this out and tries to talk to her partner about this, Daniel's initial response to Bess visiting the doctor is, why did you do this to me? Even though he later walks this statement back, the fact that this was even uttered by him uh, indicates to me a total lack of regard for the well-being of Bess. And so it really just indicates that he's in this for himself, ultimately, Bess is less important to him than what's in, inside her body. And I want to also, I mean, you you brought this point out about something being taken out of Bess's body when she's a kid against her will, maybe uh, the, the appendix bursting. Uh, bodily autonomy is something that kind of shows up again and again as a major motif in this story. The, the last thing I really want to emphasize in this section is that once Bess tells Saskia quote unquote, like nearly everything about this situation. Like Bess has clearly kept back things about like alchemy. We don't really quite know what Bess has kept back from Saskia. So like everything's kind of out in the open and Daniel's really open with Bess. And Daniel's totally into this idea that like this knowledge sack is growing out of the back of his house. Like he's engaging with Bess in this um, hallucination. And So he's sharing everything with Bess, like he's bringing Bess into his life. And it's just at this point, as Bess is pregnant, before she goes to see the doctor, before she goes to see the doctor, when like Michelle is kind of out of the picture in some sense, or she's still in it, but Bess has accepted it when she thinks she's got Daniel fully on the hook, when she has obtained Daniel in some sense, it's at this point in the story that she goes to the doctor, that she has second thoughts about the relationship. And that leads us back to the idea that obtaining Daniel was the real goal, not having a relationship with him. Well, and since this is a story where we're meant to be thinking about you know characters' pathologies, and the one we open with is unhealthy relationships, right? So we can think here even about the relationship between this, this childhood trauma of, of the hospital and, you know, whatever might be going on there. And I think you have convinced me of uh, uh, Munchausen by proxy. I, I think you you have persuaded me that we'll see. We might feel differently at the end or, uh, you know, the discussion episode. But, you know, whatever's going on there, right? This is this then becomes, you know, wrapped up in, in what love is and what trusting someone else is. And we can see where she is bringing that, you know, unhealthily, right, to this relationship with, with Daniel. And... So I think actually this reaction here is some pretty good evidence to your reading about this being Munchausen by proxy, that when she realizes that even though, you know, something is happening with her body, uh, that you know, she's pregnant, that's 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 going on here, uh, and she realizes whether, you know, it's something she actually sees or just something that, you know, occurs to her in a, a, a dream, but realizing that even with that going on, she does not have Daniel's undivided attention. And that's the thing that really breaks her. Yeah, I think that supports your your reading here. I don't think it's a provable reading, strictly speaking, but it's an argument uh, I think worth making about this text. Right. Well, we're never going to meet Bess's mother. She just never shows up in this story at all. I think it is telling that uh, she doesn't go to her mother with these problems, right? With you know relationship issues with with Daniel, uh, talking about the pregnancy at all. In fact, we have the distinct impression that uh, Bess's parents just don't exist in her life 
at all. Though she does at this point tell Daniel that she's going to go visit her mother, but but she doesn't. She's actually going to the hospital to have surgery. The the surgery is pretty serious, and and despite her own hopes, the doctors actually have to remove her entire womb, and so it does mean that she's not ever going to be able to have children at this point. The doctors do let her have the cyst that they removed, so. You know, there's that, I, I guess, at least. And while she's recovering in her hospital bed, she cuts into this cyst. And there aren't any teeth, or there's no hair or anything like that there. But what she finds instead is a small, hard stone. It's a, a nugget, really, the size of a, a pea. And so now she has to go face Daniel, except she, she can't, right? So she sends Saskia to tell Daniel what has happened. And when Saskia returns, she reports that Daniel did not take this news well. He could not understand that there was not actually any baby. And, you know, Saskia reports that Daniel was acting as if Bess had run off and had an abortion without consulting him. And when Bess leaves the hospital and tries to go home, she discovers that Daniel has changed the locks. And so home is just something she doesn't have right now. She does not have a place to, to stay, a place to, to live. But Saskia takes her in, and Saskia continues to intercede with Daniel uh, until he agrees to you know, finally sit down and talk with Bess. And, and Bess still wants to be in a relationship with Daniel, by the way, at this point. We should be clear about that. But uh, he's not very sympathetic uh, at this point. And, and after all of this has been going on for a few months, he, he tells Bess that he's seen someone else. And this is when Bess tells him about the stone that was removed from her, the stone that she has in her possession. And, and she calls this the last card she had to play in order to you know, keep Daniel or, or get him back. And it, it works at least a little bit, right? Daniel is interested in this stone. So they get together at his place. Uh, they test the stone, right? They're in you know the alchemy workshop. They test the stone. Uh, they definitely use the stone to make gold, which is that's, you know, that's cool, right? But that is actually not the point of the Philosopher's Stone, at least not for Daniel. If this Philosopher's Stone had been allowed to grow and to be born, it could have been all knowledge and it would have transformed the two of them and given them eternal life as well. And when he's explaining all of this to Bess, he gets really upset, he actually begins to cry and Bess comforts him, right? She now feels like she has, in fact, done something awful to him, uh, rather than the other way around, which is right how it looks to us, you know, the, the, the readers here. And Bess kisses him. Uh, they have a sexual encounter. Uh, she thinks that they're back together now, but they are not. And this whole encounter has shown Daniel that they just don't see the world the same way, right? Where he sees something magical, she sees a tumor, and besides, he has to continue his alchemical work, right? He has to make another Philosopher's Stone. And for that, he's going to need a woman who can conceive. But that's actually all fine by Bess. Uh, she is totally fine with this. He can have another woman like that so long as she knows that she is his real partner, right? That they have, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting here, that they have a real sacred marriage and Daniel agrees, he even gives Bess a key to his house again, uh, though she's not going to move in because he does need to find, you know, a new mother for the Philosopher's Stone here. And they resume their relationship at this point, though, though Daniel will not have vaginal sex with Bess because her womb has been removed. And, and Bess presents this as a, a kind of psychologically induced erectile dysfunction, but they are having oral sex, and that detail is going to be important later. Now, we've still got an, an entire act of the, the story left, though that will be quick. We'll actually get through the, the final act uh, very quickly, I think. But this relationship here at this point, this is truly disturbing and, and not in a weird fiction sense. Uh, yeah, this is now a completely screwed up relationship. I mean, it's really bad. You know, Daniel is also in uh, traditional use of the word, a uh, real dirt bag. He <laughs> tells Bess he's seeing someone else. So she comes over and gives him oral sex, which he receives, even though he's seeing someone else. He just tells her he needs a womb more than a woman and that sexual pleasure for him, I might add, isn't the point of them having sex. You know, it, it, this parallels like this idea of that's not the point parallels 
the fact that the Bess's ability to produce this like small version of the philosopher's stone that did produce gold wasn't the point of her risking her life for his work. He needs a full stone. You know, and so really at the end of the day, uh, my feeling is that these two really deserve each other because there's other details here that Bess is just taking advantage of Daniel. Like Daniel tries to pay off Bess and she takes his money, even though she feels bad about it, but she does it. And then she manipulates Daniel back into a relationship that he doesn't really want with this philosopher's stone business. But then, hold on a second, you know, haven't we already seen Daniel do the same exact thing with Michelle while he was seeing Bess, which will give us, you know, a hint in the structure of the story that Daniel was having a sexual relationship with Bess, with Michelle. So, like, here's what's really going on. Daniel is unobtainable again, and now Bess wants him again. And I mean, this is just the the worst. I mean, the most po- positive feelings that have come out of like my reading this story so far at this point is that uh, Muswell Hill is mentioned. So I put on Muswell Hillbillies by the Kinks while rereading this story. <laughs> There's just like two more quick things I want to point out about this text before we get into the final act. The, the first is another kind of sense of this Munchausen's by proxy situation. Like when, when Bass is talking to Saskia about Daniel and wants her to go intervene she internalizes this feeling that Saskia blames her best for having a cyst instead of a, a fetus and then also seeks love from her. And this just, again, feels like a relationship that is confusing the ideas of being sick and being loved or needing to be sick in order to be loved, even though that She's projecting, Bess is really projecting a sense of shame that she feels herself or dissatisfaction or disappointment in herself onto Saskia so that she can receive it back. Uh, And the last thing I want to point out here is that there's just some really great body horror stuff going on in this story. Like really great body horror is not my favorite, Um, but I think this story is going to veer more into the body harder territory. And I just want to say, like, I think I need a full hazmat suit, including like a fresh smelling personal oxygen supply. If I were ever <laughs> going to be forced or want to dissect a cyst, like I would never want the cysts are not things you want to cut open. You know, even if I were convinced that I could find some like alchemical agent inside of it, uh, it would take a lot to get me <laughs> to go down that path. No, I would never, ever do this. And she just does it on like, like the tray, like where, you know, she gets, you know, food, like she eats there. I, yeah, just no, 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 not something I would do at all. And it, was, it all made me squirm so much about this story actually quite makes me squirm in ways that uh, most of the time what we read doesn't bother me, but this actually did disturb me. I mean, we did put a content warning on the top of the show and, you know, this is, this is part of the reason why is that this is actually a pretty evocative and and intense story. It's all really expertly done. It really is. And and one thing in our discussion that we're going to be looking at in terms of the craft of the story is just how Lisa Tuttle is able to keep on tightening the screws of tension and horror and irony in this story to where this the final line of the story, which we'll get in just a few minutes, is a, a, a true gut punch. Right. Yeah. Let's let's get there. And everything you know has been disturbing up to this point, but it is actually about to all get even more disturbing. Bess's grandmother dies and leaves her enough money to to buy a house, which just I guess we can infer from that that at least one of her parents is is dead possibly both of them are i think the absence of parents here uh you know you've really brought out brandon how important that actually is in ways that i didn't really think about when i was approaching this story so that will be worth talking about too i think in the in the discussion but yeah so she gets enough money to buy a house and it turns out that hey the house next to daniel's is available it's for sale 
And for listeners who are unfamiliar with London's neighborhoods, Harrow, that's the neighborhood that, you know, the story is largely taking place in. It's where Daniel lives. Harrow is mostly what uh, we in America would call duplexes. So when she says house next door to Daniel's, she means that it's it's literally adjoining Daniel's house. And she actually imagines that someday they will tear down the walls between the houses and turn this, you know, duplex into a, you know, a single family home. But of course, right, she, she can't move in right away. Buying a house is quite a process. So she's still staying at Saskia's. And their relationship has become strained. For one, it's been months that Bess has been living there. It's small quarters. But also, it's clear that Saskia disapproves of Bess's continued relationship with Daniel. But at the same time, Saskia does not really have a leg to stand on because she herself has begun yet another relationship with a man who is not actually available. And so to smooth things out, Bess has been you know, trying not to stay at Saskia's. And so she would actually arrange to stay at Daniel's house whenever he was going out with his new girlfriend. And of course, right, this doesn't just mean dates because what, you know the whole point of this is that Daniel is trying to uh, impregnate another woman here, right? So these are overnight things that we're talking about here. And and Bess would let Saskia know about this so that, you know, she also could count on really having her place to herself, maybe to spend time with the person she's in a relationship with, or just, you know, get some alone time at home, whatever, you know, she wants to do. And uh, you might actually be able to see where this is going. You know, Brandon, you might have listeners might. Uh, I actually missed it, though. And this is something that really worked on, on me because Bess is returning to Saskia's place one day when she notices a weird blister at the back of the building, just like what happened at Daniel's house when she was pregnant. And so, yeah, now she understands Daniel and Saskia have been seeing each other and Saskia is now pregnant with the Philosopher's Stone, right? So Daniel has impregnated Bess's best friend, who she is living with. It's actually so convoluted, like just even just the logistics <laughs> of like, you know, where, you know, what what home is available for having sex in without Bess knowing about it. Um, that, uh, you know, in a different tone, this could, I guess, be kind of a funny rom-com scenario. But in fact, it's all absolutely horrifying. And it's a very tense conversation when Bess confronts Saskia. Saskia doesn't even know she's pregnant, which, you know, should be nearly impossible for her anyway. We were told this earlier. And she promises that she's going to break things off with Daniel right away because that relationship was just meaningless sex to her. But that's not what Bess wants, right? She wants Saskia to give Daniel a child, to give the two of them a philosopher's stone. So Bess goes and talks it over with Daniel. And they decide that the only course of action is actually going to be to imprison Saskia so that she can't go do what the narrator did. Also, presumably what Michelle did, right? And when Bess finally takes possession of the house that she's bought, the house adjoining Daniel's, she soundproofs the, the coal cellar, right? the, you know, the basement, maybe we should call it, and, and converts it into a living space. And then when Saskia comes over to this house to tell her that She's not pregnant, but in fact, she has a tumor. It's just like what happened to Bess. This is when Bess springs the trap. She drugs Saskia's tea. Then she and Daniel move Saskia down into the converted coal cellar. Saskia, you know, obviously, she's not happy about being in prison down here, but it's not her story. So Bess even just passes over this really quickly, like in, in the narrative as she's telling us this story. Now, Daniel, of course, right? He's ecstatic that the third time is going to be the charm here. And Bess's life is really dedicated to caring for Saskia now. And she even develops sympathy pains. Uh, in fact, she's having quite a bit of pain in her stomach and, and even actually some issues swallowing. When she gets a letter from her oncologist just for, you know, a, a checkup, she decides to go, even though, of course, you know, she hates hospitals, hates doctors. And yeah, it turns out that Bess has tumors in her stomach and also her throat. And these tumors are clearly from the oral sex that she's been having with Daniel. But Bess welcomes this news and she says there, there won't be any treatment this time, right? She's going to refuse treatment. She's going to let these tumors grow. And here, here is how the story ends, the, the last lines that, uh, that, that we've promised here. According to the doctor, I have about two months, maybe three before the end. I am not afraid. The end of this bodily life will be a new beginning, a great and previously unknown transformation. Out of our bodies will come treasures which will have made our lives worthwhile. And that's the end. 
Yeah, we're going to hold off talking about that line. I mean, our really whole our whole discussion is going to be oriented <laughs> towards unpacking that line in the story because the story is really set up, uh, you know, in the structure of a joke, so to speak, that it that it has all of this. Uh, all of these elements and structural techniques that are put into it to get us to this line, to this kind of pulling of the rug out from under us, this misdirection. Uh, I have a few things I want to I want to talk about. We get, we're going to go back a little bit, and uh, you know, right when Bess discovers intuitively through her hallucinatory state that Saskia is pregnant with Daniel's child, I was just thinking that this is a, a, a terrible terrible situation i mean yes maybe we could think of it as like a rom-com or like a farce (laughs) but but it's not i mean what it reveals is that bess has rotten taste uh not just in boyfriends but also in friends and also bess is a terrible friend i mean one of the most horrifying things about this story is the deeply cynical selfishness of our core cast of characters. All of the secrecy and neediness and greed that these people express and inflict on one another is just terrible. Like, all of these people need to have an intervention stat, but there doesn't seem to be anyone else in their lives that cares about them. And another thing that really jumped out to me in the conversation that Bess and Saskia have uh, after Bess finds out about Saskia and Daniel is that Bess and Saskia have a very casual relationship with uh, sex, with having sex. You know, Bess is really careless with contraception, she says, uh, which is to say that she's willing to carry the risk to fully take responsibility for the risk of any given sexual uh, encounter, casual sex, sexual encounter. And Saskia is apparently the same way. And, and it's terrible because Saskia knows what she knows about Daniel from Bess. And, and, and so their attitude is for Saskia, at least is just like, well, I'm just, I just need to have sex with somebody. So I'm going to have sex with Daniel, my best friend's ex really, partner like if you're thinking in terms of like serial monogamy here you know daniel though on the other hand at least through the evidence we're shown in the text is also fine with casual sex or at least something that looks like serial monogamy or people justify uh serial monogamy even though it's really serial polyamory Yet the women here characterize Daniel as having, quote, serious attitudes towards sex, even though he's acting in the exact same way that the women are. And, you know, this is just something that really jumped out to me in terms of Tuttle characterizing the way different genders internalize the meaning of sex in a casual sense in our in our culture. And I don't know how much we'll get into that in our discussion, but I just want to say that 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 really rang true to me, that the women have internalized, even though they feel empowered to do this, there's a sense of like responsibility for the sexual act and caution. And um, they're not ashamed of it, even though Bess does experience some shame when she uh, removes the cyst instead of having a, a child, but that Daniel, they, it's that the women view Daniel as having serious attitudes about women and sex, even though he's also engaging in the same practices that they are. Well, I just, I also want to point out a few things about the end of the story. First, uh, am I relieved that Bess finally found some joy here? I don't know. I mean, it's a horrifying (laughs) ending. You know, she found a way to get attention for her own genuine illness, but my God, what a, what a horrifying ending. And that last line is so chilling. You know, we're going to be digging into this story in our discussion in our next episode, but I, I want to point out one other literary illusion um, that is explicit in this text before we we get there. Uh, Saskio quotes a Christopher Marlowe play called The Jew of Malta here at the end of the story um, when she's talking about uh, a past sexual relationship that she had. And she says, that was long ago and in another country. And besides, the wench is dead. And this is, as I said, from Christopher Marlowe's The Jew of Malta The phrase is most recognizable to me because it's used by T.S. Eliot as an epigram in in one of my favorite poems of his called Portrait of a Lady. But in the play, there's a there's a friar who says to Barabbas, the titular character of the play, 
the, a friar says this, he's trying to get Barabbas to repent or confess and repent. Thou hast committed. And then Barabbas cuts with the friar off and says, fornication. But that was in another country. And besides, the wench is dead. And so this line is really used by Barabbas to like justify his behavior. Like, no harm, no foul. The wench is dead. So who is really left to accuse me of anything I've done wrong? And so this is a great bit of dialogue. And the Jew of Malta does involve plots that include poison and greed as like plot points and themes and stuff. So maybe we can keep that in mind for our discussion, though I'm not sure how much more this line has to do, this allusion has to do with the story at hand, other than it's just a great line in in English literature. We might also be interested in thinking about this story in light of something else Marlowe did, right? Which is Faust, right? Marlowe did a Faust story and there might be something Faustian, you know, or at least a Faustian reading of this story that we could we could take up as well. Yes. And in our uh, discussion episode, I will be bringing up what I think is the uh, literary precursor to this story. I I haven't said it yet, but we'll say it (laughs) in the next episode. Uh, The last thing I want to point out here is Saskia's own understanding of her own pathology, which is to say that Saskia says, my pathology is that I get hooked on men who are incapable of loving me. And while that may be the case, it also feels like Saskia makes friends with people who are incapable of loving her as well, a la Bess. Uh, but we're going to have plenty of time in, in our discussion to talk about, you know, the pathologies of these characters and, and how they emerge. You know, I want to point out in this episode, too, just finally, that Saskia is the only one in this story who talks about pathologies. And that that's a curious feature of the story as well. So I guess we should just wrap it up here and prepare for our discussion episode. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to commission an episode of your own, you can do that by visiting the website as well, or you can contact us via email or, or Twitter or Reddit. Uh, if you're a Patreon supporter, you get a discount on commissions, of course, and uh, even free episodes at some levels. But also, Patreon's a great place to message us as well. We really love doing commissioned episodes. So if you've got something you would like to hear us talk about, we, we hope you'll you hope you do it. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and, uh, hey, talk to us about all the kind of rich material that is in that is in this uh, Liesl Tuttle story, My Pathology. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and kind of, uh, I don't know, hear your thoughts. This is, a, this is a deep and strange and weird and dark and horrifying tale. Right. And we are not done with it yet. So next time we will be back with a discussion episode about My Pathology. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>